I'm sure before or after any church service, you've probably asked questions like this before. What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? When we meet someone for the first time, we all have to start somewhere on how to break the ice, how to get to know them in an easy entry door kind of way. Questions like these can seem innocent. They're not too aggressive, at least for most of us. After getting the answers to those basic questions and exchanging information about ourselves, it's then we get tested on how much we really like small talk, don't we? Our minds begin to race. Our palms begin to sweat. Do I keep the conversation going or leave it before it gets silently awkward where we're just looking at each other and really don't know what to talk about? Do I leave the conversation before it gets way too personal? Do we talk about the weather, the game last night? Do we talk about the vacation plans coming up? Or do we talk about how many days we have left till the kids go back to school? Or do I jump right into what's pressing in on my life right now? What's truly heavy on my mind? Do I talk about how difficult my marriage has been lately? How depression and anxiety has been overwhelming me, how I loathe my job, how I'm avoiding my parents, how I haven't talked to my kids in years, how I'm scared of getting older, how I'm scared of dying. What exactly do I share and what will this other person do or say with this information I share with them? If we do choose to get more personal, become more transparent, and get more real, we might say, it's, it's only then do we truly get to learn someone's story, their testimony, what makes them tick, why they act the way they do, and how they got to be where they're at today. We move from small talk and we begin to ask deeper, more heart-revealing questions. Maybe if you're someone here this morning and you realize, you know what, I, I major in small talk, but I don't know how to transition small talk to let's get real talk. So if that's you, you might want to re-listen to this sermon because I'm going to give you some suggestions by questions like this. Where did you grow up? What are your hobbies? What do you do for work? Why did you decide to pursue that career? How did you know your spouse was the one for you? What's been hard lately about parenting? Who are your closest friends? Do you have any strained relationships in your life? If you do, why are they strained? Do you consider yourself to be a born-again Christian? Are you a member of a local church? Why did you join that local church? What do you enjoy about it? What do you least enjoy about that church and why? What do you think God is teaching you lately about himself? What do you think he's teaching you about his grace and mercy? What do you think God's been showing you lately about how he is in sovereign control over your life and not you? And then if you really want to get deep, I mean like deeper than the trough. We're talking about ocean deep into one another's stories and lives. 
this question would take you down there like a scuba diver. What sin or sins seem to be most tempting for you in your life these days? Does anyone else know about this sin? And how are you planning to flee, fight, and avoid this temptation the next time it comes? If you could change anything in your life, what would it be right now? Is there anything in your life right now that you know God disapproves of and you know you should change it, but you won't? Is there anything God has already made abundantly clear that should change and that you should do next in your life, but you continue refusing to trust him? Friends, it's questions like these that we turn now to our sermon passage this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 451. Jonah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, you can take that Bible in the chair backs or the pews as a gift from our church to you. This morning, we begin a two-week sermon series through one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, the book of Jonah. In fact, if you're not as familiar with this book, you can turn over to page 9, whenever you want, and see where it fits in redemptive history in the chart we provide. A few helpful background notes to bring to your attention regarding the book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of God, which meant he was authorized and commissioned by the Lord to deliver a message from God to a designated people. Jonah is only mentioned one time in the entire Old Testament outside of the book of Jonah, and a handful of times by Jesus in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 25, which reads, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo-Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. From this passage, we know where Jonah's from. He was from Gath-Hefer, which was about 14 miles west of the Sea of Galilee, about five miles or so from Nazareth. We also see from this passage who was reigning as king in the northern kingdom of Israel at this time. Jonah's service as prophet was during the 8th century BC when the wicked king Jeroboam II was in office. And thirdly, it's important to note Jonah is often well known and remembered by church kids and VBS teachers and Sunday school leaders as the man who got swallowed up by a whale and lived to talk about it. But what we'll come to find out is that first, the word whale is not used in the original language. It just says a large fish swallowed Jonah. It's a good guess that it was a whale, but we don't know for certain. Secondly, the mentioning of this supernatural 
unrepeated event in the Bible is preserved for us in kind of a drive-through, fly-by kind of way. That means the overall narrative of this book spends far less time on the size and stomach of the fish and far more time on the sovereignty and pursuing mercy of God. You see, all over the walls of the life and ministry of Jonah is spray-painted God's sovereignty from the beginning to the end. And we will see something more than just Jonah in this story. We will see something of ourself reflected in how Jonah responded to God's leading in his life. Which brings us to our passage this morning, Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Please follow with me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call it to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, and they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. 
you're taking notes, I have two main outline points that will shape this morning's sermon. Point number one, be in awe at God's sovereign and persistent pursuit of sinful rebels. Be in awe at God's sovereign and persistent pursuit of sinful rebels. That's really chapter one. And then point number two, which will come from chapter two that I'll read at the conclusion of this morning's sermon. Point number two, be thankful for God's surprising and saving mercies towards sinful rebels. Be thankful for God's surprising and saving mercies towards sinful rebels. Let's look together at that first point, be in awe at God's sovereign and persistent pursuit of sinful rebels. Look with me at verses one to three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go to them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 1 really just sets the stage for the whole book. It sets the stage. It puts train tracks of this amazing and suspenseful story. It's a true story that took place in the life of a man named Jonah, in the lives of these sailors on a ship heading to Tarshish, and in the lives of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who made up the city of Nineveh. And all of that, friends, is under and in the hands of God's mission to mercifully rescue sinners in mysteriously surprising ways. Verse 1 begins with, now the word of the Lord, or we might say in our vernacular, the revealing of God's thoughts, God's desires, and God's instructions being conveyed to a man. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Simply put, God spoke to a man. The creator of the heavens and the earth who spoke the world into existence out of nothing sovereignly chose to speak to a creature that he made in his image. That's because Jonah was a prophet and prophets we're given one overarching responsibility. We might say when we hire someone, I've given you one job to do. Don't mess it up. A prophet was to be a spokesman, a preacher, a herald of Yahweh. A prophet was to speak only that which God has spoken. And a prophet was to go to the people that God was calling that prophet to go. Like the prophets of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others like Amos, Hosea, and Micah, Jonah was called by Almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, to proclaim, thus says the Lord, and to leave the results to God. And friends, anytime a preacher stands in the pulpit, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, his number one mission to do when he gets behind the sacred desk is to do just that, to proclaim, thus says the Lord from the Bible and leave the results to God. 
I covet your prayers as your pastor. This is not a lecture. This is not a pep rally pump-up talk. This is the living and abiding word of the living God. And when a man, sinful and fallible and weak as I am, gets up, the only thing we're trusting in in this moment is not my eloquence, not my talent, not my experience. The one thing we are trusting in is that God the Holy Spirit has chosen to speak through a man to his people. So pray for the anointing, the unction, the filling of the Holy Spirit that he might preach to us his word so that when you and I walk away from this congregation, you walk away going, wow, that did not come from Pastor Blake. That came from the God who put him behind that pulpit. And friends, that's the same way we should be praying for one another. We should soak our hearts in the scriptures so that when God squeezes us in our life, the Bible comes out and we are instruments in his hand to speak truth to one another. Friends, whatever we're doing, evangelizing family, evangelizing neighbors, or evangelizing our children, we speak clearly, boldly, and faithfully by the grace of God and we leave the results to him. So where was Jonah called by God to prophesy? And to whom was Jonah called to deliver this message? And what was the message that Jonah was called to preach? Look at me at verse 2. The Lord said to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, where is Nineveh? You have your worship guide handy. Go ahead and turn to page 10. Turn to page 10. On page 10, you'll see a map that shows where some of the locations are in Jonah chapter 1. So, children, this is your chance to compete with your parents if they're sitting next to you or you're sitting next to them to try to find, where's Israel on the map? Come on, Mom, let's see what you got. Come on, Dad. See if you can find Israel. Just to give you a little hint, it's somewhat kind of to the left-hand corner. All right, then now look up, just about an inch or two, and then go to the right. You'll see in capital letters the word Assyria. Right above the word Assyria, you'll find Nineveh. So if you want to take a red pen or a highlighter, you can do that. Uh, Nineveh was the largest city of Assyria at that time. It was the capital city. It was located about 500 to 600 miles northeast of Israel. If you're familiar with your Bible, in the Old Testament, you'll know that in 722 B.C., God would bring judgment upon the apostate or faithless northern kingdom of Israel. You can actually look at the other chart in your guide to see when that exile happened. 2 Kings chapter 17 records that uh, awful capture in subsequent exile. Uh, during the rise and fall of wicked kings in Israel like King Jeroboam, this powerful nation of Assyria that you see up there in the northeast corridor of the map, they would ransack, they would take captive the northern tribes of Israel. God warned them, if you turn from me and bow to idols, I will give you over to an evil nation. And that's exactly what Assyria did. The godless would make their homes in the promised land because the godly have given God a bad name. The Assyrian army was no small army. They were powerful 
and they were immensely dominating at this time. Nineveh was heavily populated, and it was known as a very wicked city. We might even call it Sin City. It was a place full of evil and pagans and idol worship and barbaric lives of gore and murder and things that we would be ashamed to talk about in Norman normal conversation. In fact, if you read the prophet Nahum, if it's been a while or those pages stick in your Bibles, you can read Nahum chapter 3 or Nahum, whatever parts of the country you're from, and you can read about how ugly and how awful these people were. I mean, listen to a sample, Nahum 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. I mean, just be, where are you from? I'm from the bloody city. Where were you born? The bloody city. That, that's, whoa, you know, I'm out of here. All full of lies and plunder, no end to their prey. Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of the ancient times. The emperor Shalmaneser III is well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and decapitations of enemies in gruesome detail on large stone relief panels. Uh, not to gross you out or try to have a stomach ache this early on a Sunday morning, I do want us to understand the weightiness and the gravity of God sending a prophet to this city. Listen to what scholars and commentators have described about the Assyrians at this time. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of the, their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They even burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. One scholar thus appropriately called the Assyrians a terrorist state. Now in our modern times, especially since September 11th, those Different terrorist groups of Al-Qaeda that Osama bin Laden used to regime and lead under, or ISIS, known as the Islamic State. We are more familiar with those types of forms of terrorism. But beloved, when you stack up Al-Qaeda and ISIS against the Assyrian army, the empire in the 8th century, the Assyrian army in those days would have thumped those terrorist groups like they were nothing, like they were schoolyard kids on the recess being kicked out of the playground. This was at a level of evil that you and I have never seen in our lifetime. And here's what's astounding. God was sending Jonah, his prophet, to that kind of nation, to that kind of city, to those kinds of people. This was a missions trip that none of us would have signed up for eagerly and quickly. You wouldn't have put pictures of Nineveh on the screen to get everyone, yeah, I want to go. You just heard the description. You're walking into a death sentence if you show up there preaching against them. Friends, this was a missions trip that didn't have a church to send in support. This was a missions trip where the IMB said, we can't fund this. 
This was a missions trip that the United States Marines said that we would not even try to protect you. But Jonah was called to do one thing. Listen to his God and be faithful to him. As God's man, his mouthpiece, he was to take nothing but a message, God's message, with God's authority and God's presence backing him and sustaining him each step of the way. Jonah was called not to give a tickle-your-ear kind of sermon. He was called not to play church with religious hypocrites who wanted entertainment rather than edification. He was not to go to Nineveh uh, trying to go along to get along so that he can appease the crowds. No, Jonah was called to preach a message that unless God took stony hearts and turned them into hearts of flesh, Jonah's head was going to be a new ornament in the city. And out of God's sovereign and majestic authority, he commissioned this man to call out against it for their evil had been seen and known by the Lord. Friends, sometimes it's hard to to believe that. You and I see evil from a limited perspective. We can turn off the television. We can read a book or choose not to read it. We can act like there's not evil in the world. We can run from evil people. But friends, there's 7 billion people on this planet multiple continents, thousands upon thousands of languages and a long list of people groups from first world problems among us living in the West all the way down to third world, cannibalistic, idol-worshiping, demon-led tribes living in the jungles, the mountains, the caves, and the islands around the world that no outsider has ever been to. That is really hard for us to grasp. But God sees it all. God sees it all the time, all over the world, without pause. Friends, we can turn on the TV. We can read a book. We might even encounter evil in our life done to us or to those we love. And to actually believe that our God sees all the evil, and yet he's good at the same time, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. It can be hard to wrap our minds around the fact that evil doesn't get punished immediately. Justice isn't being served immediately. Spiritual con artists are not being exposed and removed from Christ's church. We might even be tempted to say, God, where are you? Did you not see what happened to those people? Are you not paying attention to what happened to me? Friends, make no mistake about it. The God we serve is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. He's omniscient. He knows everything perfectly. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Friends, did you hear that? In every place. No exception. 
in your home, in your car, and across the world. Alan read earlier from Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24. He says, I am, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Friends, we as sinners can run, but we cannot hide. We can run, but we cannot hide. There are no truly secret places in the world that we can ultimately be secret and hidden from everyone and everything. There are truly no secret sins. It's a myth because the sins of our hearts are an open book before this omniscient God. Even David in Psalm 139 articulates this in a vivid, poetic way about God's care for him and really his care for us. And God is intimately acquainted with the ordinary and the mundane of our life. He, he's acquainted with when we're born and when and how we're going to die. He even has in his book written all the days that we will ever live before they even come to pass. Psalm 139 verse 7, David asked a rhetorical question. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? The answer, David, nowhere. Everywhere you and I go, God is already there. Back to Jonah. The Lord clearly conveyed to Jonah what Jonah already knew. The Lord knew exactly where Nineveh was and the type of people who lived there. Nothing will ever catch God by surprise. And Jonah was given a ministry by God that sounded much like John the Baptist's ministry. Much like the apostles of the New Testament's ministry. Much like the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Matt read earlier from Luke chapter 5. Jesus says, I came, I was sent, not to call the righteous, but the sinners to what? To repentance. Jonah was to herald a message that God gives wayward, sinful rebels in the Old and the New Testament. Repent, for judgment day is coming. A repentance simply means to change your mind and to turn away from sin and turn in faith to God. It's an about face. It's a 180 degree turn. It's turning your back on the sin you once loved, what were deceived by, and look to this sovereign God whose grace and mercy can cover that rebellion. That's godly repentance. And friends, Jonah was called to preach this message, call out against it, call sin, sin, and warn them of judgment. But anytime God does that through the scriptures, it's also echoing, there's mercy if you turn to me. That included the king of Assyria. That included the civil leaders of Nineveh all the way down to the thousands and thousands and thousands of people living all throughout the neighborhoods, Jonah was to call out against it. Friends, that would have been no small task. Goodness gracious. There's one thing to say I'll share the gospel with someone in Barling this afternoon. There's a whole other thing to be sent to a terrorist nation with your face on it as most wanted as a missionary for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Friends, I've met missionaries who've had their face on posters saying wanted. And to hear him share about, we had to leave the nation because they were after me. Friends, men hate the light because they love darkness and their deeds are evil. Friends, Jonah was being called not to a Sunday school class in a Baptist church somewhere in a country club kind of context. He was being called to a people that could take his life. But what exactly did Jonah do? How did he respond? Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah arose, all right. He got up out of his seat. He got up out of his couch. But it wasn't to get an Uber ride to Nineveh. It wasn't to get a horse or a donkey taxi to that northeast corridor. No, Jonah decided to flee. He's decided to bolt. Or in our vernacular, he decided to ghost on his divine calling from God. He hightailed it, not towards Nineveh, to the northeast. He hightailed it as fast as he could. I mean, that's what the word flee means. Get out of there. Skedaddle. Take the first ticket out of here south. Get on a ship and take the longest route possible to the polar opposite end of the known world at the time. But you know what Jonah says in the first few verses? It wasn't Nineveh that ultimately Jonah was running from. It says he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, a port city on the southwest side of Israel. He paid the fare. He got the ticket. He got his passport stamped, and he headed toward Tarshish. Now, where on earth is Tarshish? Okay, look on your map. It's a really good question. I don't know. Commentators and scholars and throughout history, that's a big question mark. It was either Spain or North Africa, but it was at least somewhere between 2,500 miles to 3,000 miles in the opposite direction. Friends, to give you a visual here, if I would tell Gentry and Allie, hey, let's, let's hang out this afternoon, and let's say we were in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I'm waiting on Gentry and Allie to come over and hang out. They're in San Jose, California. Or if I'm like, Ian, hey, you want to catch some shades before, you know, things get busy with school? Let's go on to Miami. Miami to San Diego, California. That's the distance away from where Jonah should have been to where he was going. Friends, Jonah, the first thing that he thought about when God put this charge on him, this commission on him, this calling on him, was not to say, yes, Lord, send me, but I'm getting out of Dodge real quick, fast, in a hurry. It's ironic, isn't it? A prophet of God whose theology is better than ours who knows God is omniscient and omnipresent, 
and yet thought he could flee from the presence of the Lord. Friends, if you and I took an honest evaluation of our life today, is anyone among us running from the Lord? Is anyone among us trying to hide from him? Trying to avoid, trying to deny, trying to suppress and push away God's word speaking into my life. Push away God's people from shepherding and discipling me in my life. Pushing away what God has made abundantly clear in his word and in providence, what his will is for me to do next. You know, friends, when churches get really excited about making disciples and meaningful membership, they sometimes don't know what they're praying for and what they're asking. When believers start making disciples and membership actually means something, it means we start getting real with each other. It means it starts getting really hard to run and really hard to hide. That's why churches where it's easy to hide, it's not a church you want to join. You do not want to join a church where it's easy to hide, easy to slouch, easy to bolt. Because when left to ourselves, that is our natural default. Prone to wander, prone to leave, prone to leave the God we love. That's all of us. But friends, when we do start having real, meaty, in-depth relationships, we start asking questions that go from small talk to real talk. And sooner or later, you will hear this. We've all said it. We've all heard it. Well, I'm struggling. I've been struggling lately. It's like mosquito repellent for people. I'm struggling. Pray for me. Shh. Don't get close. It's like the old school when I was a kid. I've got a prayer request, but it's a silent one. Well, how can I pray for a prayer I don't know to pray? I just don't see that in the Bible. Anyway, I'm struggling lately. Pray for me, Pastor. And what I want to do is get that nasty spray out of my face. Come on. What's going on in there? As you've heard me quote it before, Elizabeth Elliot once said, sometimes struggling is a nice word for postponed obedience. Friends, there are all sorts of real painful and unpredictable forms of suffering that do come our way. Even just this week, members of our church have experienced suffering of all different shades. None of their struggles was their fault. They simply had to respond what God ordained into their life and rely upon the Lord. But friends, we can all put some insect propellant on the outside using struggling, and it's just a cover-up of deeper and more serious issues going on in our hearts. It could be that our hearts are on the verge of drifting and wandering and running from the Lord. Sometimes we even say things like this, well, I've been busy. I've got a lot going on. Friends, busy is not the problem, but a busy and restless heart is. Sometimes what's going on inside our hearts is that we're rebelling against God. As Sinclair Ferguson once said, God uses us for his glory, and yet our hearts may not be in tune with his. Beware of making usefulness to God or mistaking usefulness to God for communion with God. 
Friends, God can be using us in a variety of ways. We can be busy doing this and that in the name of the Lord's work in your jobs, in our families, in our churches. Be busy, 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 and God's using us. And yet sometimes we mistake being used of God with communion with him. Never forget God used Judas and he used Peter. He used Judas through his sin and Satan and the economy of God to lead to our Lord's betrayal and he went straight to hell. God used Judas and he used Peter. Friends, being used by the Lord is really not that big of a deal. He uses donkeys. He can use anyone at any time. Usefulness is not the most important thing. Knowing him and enjoying him and fellowshipping with him and communing with him, that is the most important prize of our life. Before we make service for the Lord, we need to ask ourselves, are we communing with him? So what was it for Jonah? He was a prophet. He knew what God had said. Why did he disobey? Well, We'll get to chapter 4 next week and see more clarity on that. But let's keep reading. Look at verses 4 to 6. But the word of the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Here Jonah gets on the ship thinking he's heading for freedom from responsibility, freedom from accountability, freedom from stress and worry. And lo and behold, what does he run into on that ship? It wasn't a flower necklace around his neck. It, it wasn't a smooth sailing to the Bahamas. He ran into a storm. Verse 4 says, a mighty tempest arose on the sea, a violent storm, hurricane-like winds. Jonah got on that ship thinking, I did it. I escaped. No one will ever know what I did. And he got on that ship, and the music was playing. He had the flower necklace on, and then lo and behold, thunder struck. It was nightmarish, scary, scurred, as we might say. Sailors are freaking out. What on earth is this? And you would think these men would have been like, yeah, we see storms all the time. This is kind of like everyday work for me. But they're scared to death. This storm seems like it just kind of came out of nowhere. This storm may have been more violent than they had ever seen before. Because verse 4 says, the Lord hurled a great wind on that sea. And you'll notice that these sailors, they didn't exactly go to the same seminary or Bible college as Jonah. They were calling upon their pagan idols, their so-called gods. They're casting lots. They're pulling straws. They're rolling dice, trying to figure out where on earth is this coming from? It's just got to be something outside of us. Maybe it's one of the gods. I heard one time a veteran army ranger tell me this, I've never met an atheist in a foxhole. And it's true. When you're scared out of your wits, your conscience will bear witness. This creator we've been suppressing our whole life. 
And here it is. These lots are being cast. The dice are being rolled. And in God's sovereignty and in his orchestrating, the lot falls on Jonah. They look at Jonah and they begin to interrogate this man to find out who are you and where are you from. Look at verses 8 to 11. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Friends, Jonah knew where he was from and he was proud of it. He knew what country he was from. He knew where he was born and raised. He knew what his heritage was like. He said, I'm a Hebrew. It's the first thing out of his mouth. I'm a Jew. I'm from Israel. And I'm proud of it. And then the second thing out of his mouth is he shared his spiritual pedigree, his theology. He pulled out, I'm a Christian card. I'm a fourth generation Baptist. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, and the sea and the dry land. But in the course of their dialogue, they are interrogating this man as if he stole something from the capital in the United States. They start grilling him, and he starts talking. And they learn in his story, Jonah starts getting honest and sincere, but he doesn't appear repentant yet. Friends, let me just give you a little side word of counsel. When someone gets sincere or honest with you and I, it doesn't mean they're repentant. There's a difference between confession of sin because you're repentant and getting caught in your sin. Jonah was caught. Verses 11 to 16 you think the story would just end there? Okay, I've come clean. Just leave me alone now. I've told you where I've come from. These men knew something. You're our problem. <laughs> You're the reason our life's being threatened in danger. Our ship heading to Tarshish was going to go just swell until you showed up. Friends, just another side note here. You know you're running from God when unbelievers know you are. You know you're running from God when non-Christians look at you and go, you ain't right with God. Not the God you talk about. Friends, we can sometimes go so off the beaten path, off the narrow way, on the broad way, so much that unbelievers go, something ain't right with that guy. Something ain't right with that girl. And friends, willful disobedience to the Lord will bring about self-inflicted suffering in our life. Personal sin if not repented and dealt with, will affect people around us. Jonah's sin that he was hiding was now affecting an entire ship of people's welfare. God can speak through donkeys. God can use unbelievers at times to even reprove us when we're off. So what did these men do? They said, Jonah, we're about to give you a cannonball into the sea. They picked him up, chunked him all over, and verse 16 says, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Why did they do that? Because the sea and the winds 
were calm. It's amazing how God can still draw straight lines with crooked sticks. These pagan sailors are now calling on Yahweh and fearing him, even despite Jonah's rebellion against God. That's amazing grace. So what happens to Jonah? He does a can opener into the sea. Well, God's not done with him. Jonah thought he could just end his life, be done with this, the storm gee over. Jonah was running. Jonah was sailing. Jonah was hiding. Jonah was swimming. He's trying to avoid everyone and everything. He's even sleeping. And yet God had a better plan for Jonah's life. Jonah needed one thing to happen for all this to go away. He needed to be brought very, very low. Friends, chapter 1 draws to a close by God speaking to a great fish to swallow and house this disobedient prophet. He does it for three days and three nights to teach and instruct Jonah a lesson that he wouldn't have learned otherwise. Friends, we should be in awe of God's sovereignty and how much he pursues and is patient with rebels. Which leads to our second point, be thankful for God's surprising and saving mercies towards sinful rebels. Here in Jonah 2, we see the first time Jonah ever prays to his God in this book, in the midst of all his running. Look with me at Jonah 2, starting in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Friends, Jonah was now at the end of his rope. He experienced a near-death experience. Three days three nights in a stinky, smelly, lonely belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea. Friends, if you're not a Christian here this morning, one thing we want you to understand is something that we as Christians have come to understand and continue to be reminded of. We can run from our good God, but we cannot hide from him. We can hide, we can suppress, we can play and pretend, but God sees it all. And yet God in his sovereignty is also good even when we're bad. You see, Jonah is a wonderful example of what happens when sinners stop running from God and start surrendering to him. You see, Jonah had wasted time. He had wasted money. Haven't we all done the same? 
making really bad decisions, but friends, running from God that is a good God, it makes no sense. So how will this fix this daily struggle we have with postponed obedience? How will we be cured of running and hiding and disobeying God when he's made it abundantly clear what we should do next with our life? Dane Orland puts it this way, our culture tells us that the problem is outside us and the solution is inside us. The gospel tells us that the problem is inside us and the solution is outside us. Friends, the bad news is that our problem starts here, not out there. But the good news is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh, And he spoke the very words of God. He obeyed the very words of God. And he did that because we have failed to do so. Like Jonah has. Like every sinner that ever will live has. Christ came to this earth to seek and save that which was lost. That which was rebellious. Unlike Jonah, Jesus always lived before the favorable presence and face of God. Jesus never fell prey to selective obedience or postponed obedience. He obeyed his father perfectly. Jonah may have jumped ship that day and it brought peace to the sailors, but it was Jonah's sin that put him there in the first place. Jonah's sin is what brought the storm and affected everyone's lives. Jonah's sin is what caused him to delay doing what God had called him to do. Friends, when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't just cowardly jump ship. He left glory to die on a cross. He would die on a cross to appease the eternal wrath and storm of God against our sin. So that if we put our faith and trust in him, we turn from our sins and trust in him, there is now peace with God. See, the good news is that Jonah jumped ship into the belly of a fish. Jesus died on a cross, was buried in the belly of the earth, and three days later, God raised him from the dead. Friends, we don't need outside solutions that do not save our inside problem. We need the only one outside us who can. We're rebels through and through. We need a real Savior who can change us from the inside out. And that Savior is in Christ. Friends, inside of Jonah's heart, we're often very similar, aren't we? We tend to hide. We tend to run. We tend to fake what's really going on in our life. But as you can see from Jonah's example, where did it lead him? It led him to a life of loneliness, pain, regret, and a lot of people were affected by it. And yet God in his mercy put him in the belly of that fish because God loves rebels. He loves Jonah's, and we will find out next week, he loved the Ninevites too. You see, friends, only in Christ and in Christ alone do we know what it means to have a love that is steadfast, 
Verse 8, Jonah says to believe in anything and put anything before God is an idol, and it's vanity. It is meaningless. But notice there in verse 9, Jonah said salvation belongs to the Lord. Friend, do you struggle with assurance of your salvation? Do you feel like you've blown it a million times like Jonah and feel like there's no way he will continue to pursue me like that? Friend, notice what Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. If salvation was up to us, we would lose our salvation. But because salvation comes from God through Christ, he is doing the saving. We are doing the beholding. He is a savior who can save us from ourselves. Why did God do what he did? One human being, the storm, the lots, the sailor, the fish, all to save one rebel. Why has God done everything he's done in our lives? To seek and save you and I. Was well, to show us we cannot outrun God's grace and love for us. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the word of the Lord through the book of Jonah has now come to us. The question is this. How will we respond? Will we disobey and run? Or will we humble ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and his goodness towards us and follow him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask that you would apply what we have read this morning to each of our hearts. Show us where we have rebelled and run. Cause us to stop, to bow, to surrender, and obey. Lord, we pray that you would cause each one of us to think well about how you have been pursuing us in our life. That we would not take for granted your kind providences, even sometimes those severe mercies. And Father, we pray even now as we sing our praises to you that we will remember that Christ is our only hope in life and death. It's in his name we pray. Amen.